Today on Sagittarian Matters, difficult women, life as a working artist, motherhood, the burden of representation, and more. With my guest, Nidhi Chinani. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Today's episode of Sagittarian Matters is brought to you by Prunes Dipped in Tahini, Ponzini Linguini, and my new advice column, Queer Abbey. You can read Queer Abbey right now for free at intomore.com. Hey, Sagittarian Matters. My name is Danette, and I'm calling in because I've been listening to the podcast for about a year now. And there is a snack that I've heard you mention in a few episodes, the prune dipped in tahini. And I'll be honest, I never went out of my way to try it. It didn't sound that exciting. Um, But the other day when I was going through my fridge, uh, I spotted a couple of prunes. I look over, there's a jar with a little bit of tahini in it. And I figured, why the hell not? So I I dipped the prune. And I got to say, I loved it. I loved it. It was a delight. Um, the texture was great, the flavors were amazing, and it was just it was just the perfect snack. And I wanted to as a, let you know that as a listener, I tried it and I loved it, and it's a great snack. So thank you so much uh, for taking my call. Uh, I look forward to hearing more snack recommendations from you in the future. Ho-ho, Ponyo, sound the alarm, it looks like. We have a new prune lover in the house. Hello, listeners. I'm coming to you from a weird patio in a San Francisco condo building, and I want to tell you that I did eat a prune dipped in tahini in front of my students last week, and I have not been fired yet, but let us just say it felt like a controversial snack to eat mid-conversation in front of 14 people. I also want to say that not only have I enjoyed prunes dipped in tahini lately, but also strawberries, seasonal favorite, and apple slices. All right, we have an advice question. Dear Sagittarian Manners, what do you use to ink your work? From Questioning in Quebec. Dear Questioning, I really like a Pentel pocket brush, but I also like use just a regular teeny teeny tiny brush dipped in ink Um, a lot of people use a Kalinsky brush but I can't do that because it is not vegan it is made from the tail of a weasel so I use something called white sable um, and it's synthetic it's plastic sable sable is like a mink basically so anytime you see a sable or a Kalinsky brush you're using a tail Um, I also like to use a giant brush pen. I cannot remember the brand because it's usually written in Japanese, but it's kind of of squeezy and you can refill it with black ink. And I use Micron pens now a lot. I used to use Rapidographs religiously, but they started clogging on me and the company was not very good about customer service. And so I said, screw you. And now I use Micron pens, even though they drive me up the wall. And also sometimes I like to use a nib pen, like a dip pen, um, like a real thick one for lines when I'm doing the panel borders and stuff like that. Anyway, I hope that's helpful for you. And if you ever want to do gray wash like I do, I use gray markers and I dilute ink in teeny, teeny, tiny cups of water. 
You have a few teeny tiny cups of water. You put like one drop of ink in one, two, three drops in another one, five drops in another one, and there you have a gradient of grays. Um, and also I use either watercolor paper or mixed media paper, or I like to use Bristol board. Good luck. I can't wait to see your comics. Nidhi Chanani is an illustrator, a cartoonist, and the author of Pashmina, a feminist graphic novel about an Indian-American teenager who goes on a sometimes magical quest to find answers about her family and her past. The New York Times said, Chanani masterfully turns the complex immigrant narrative into a magical and captivating work of art. I agree. You can find prints, greeting cards, books, and Nidhi's illustration series, Everyday Love, at everydayloveart.com. P.S. In this interview, we mentioned someone named Jean. We are talking about cartoonist Jean Yang, who is the author of the graphic novel American Born Chinese. It was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2006, and if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend it. Okay, please enjoy my talk with Nidhi Chanani. Nidhi Chanani, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Thank you so much for having me. We're on a couch at California College of the Arts in the writer's studio. I've never done an interview in here before. We'll see how it sounds. And I don't know. I hope it sounds amazing. Me too. Well, I'm getting closer. Ponyo uh, spit a tennis ball into my lap. She is staring at my lap. And I want to tell you, my students today were working, and I realized in my head that my ideal scenario for the end of class like the end of a semester, would be the students carrying me on their shoulders, <laughs> cheering for me, because <laughs> I tell them I did such a good job teaching them, <laughs> kind of like in like Pee Wee's Big Adventure in his dream sequence about like winning a bicycle race. Right. They'd be like, hip, hip, hooray, <laughs> and I realized that never happens, and so my expectations are always a little bit not met. <laughs> That's funny, because I was just talking to some of the students at the end of this thesis defense, and I was thinking, my ideal scenario would be if they all go out for drinks after, and they're like, come, please come, you should join us. You know, like, I, I could be with them. You know, like, we would be a family, and they would see me as part of it, rather than oh. she's not with us because she's either she sucks as a teacher, and we don't like her, or um, we see ourselves as different. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Because I'm like, if they invited me somewhere, I'd be like, oh, no, thanks. Yeah. No, thanks. I might say no, thanks, yeah. but I just want to be invited. You be like, come on, please. Right. You're one of the gang. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because um, I always have to get home. So, but yeah. yeah, anyway. Well, so we both teach at CCA. Yes. All right, Ponyo, this needs to stop. This, this, tennis, this tennis ball thing needs to be over. Excuse me. I'm just putting it there. I encouraged it. It's okay. I just, you know, Nitty got here and Ponyo got really excited, got the tennis ball. And then has been like spitting it at us yeah. ever since then. So we both teach at CCA. I, we teach the same students. I pass them off to you. But backing up, backing up, backing up, the reason you teach at CCA is because you're a graphic novelist. Do you think of yourself as more of an illustrator or a cartoonist or graphic novelist or what? Man, I feel like I can't distinguish between all of those things. I just call myself everything. I'm a writer. I'm a graphic novelist. I'm an illustrator. I mean, I haven't been doing uh, comics as long as I have been doing illustration. So technically, I guess it would be illustrator first, mm -hmm. comics person next. But I just see them as equal. Yeah. 
I think that you did such a good job jumping into comics. Pashmina was beautiful. I didn't even, I think when I was reading it, I didn't even realize that you were new-ish to comics. So here's a secret about Pashmina um, is I had really only done like two or three comics before I just dove right in. It's like the thing that you always tell your students not to do. Don't start with your magnum opus. And I was like, except that I did, um, which was very unwise. And that's why I think it took me four years to make it. But like, I think for, for the next book that I'm working on, I started Thumbs. I'm 50 pages in and I could see myself finishing in two years. Mm-hmm. So, but with Pashmina, I had so much to learn because I had not done any of this before. Um, but I do think that illustration depending on the kind of illustration that you're doing, um, does lend itself to comics if you're doing a lot of storytelling in your illustrative work. But if you're doing just kind of like pinups or something, that's not necessarily something that's going to lend itself to doing comics really smoothly. Well, I want to know, you had another life before you were a professional artist. How did you, how did you get from there to here? So... I was in the nonprofit sector and I was an executive director, a grant writer, all of those things, but I never lasted more than a year in a job and I always kept coming back to art. So it would take like kind of, you know, um, side art classes. I took a lot of classes at art leagues and so I would be the youngest person amongst retirees, which is great and all, but I also felt frustrated because it was more of a casual art approach and I wanted something a little more serious, but I didn't know anything. I didn't know how do you become an artist, you know, like it was just so unfamiliar to me. Nobody in my family or in my, um, kind of friend circle had pursued anything creative. And so um, I started following this artist named Kurt Halsey and he was doing illustration work, but a lot of it was narrative and I loved him so much. And I, you know, how you go down that rabbit hole of trying to find out everything about the artists that you love. Well, not that many people do. And I think it's such a smart thing to do. Oh, really? You think so? Oh, I, I guess people don't track the careers of people they love, right. but they do find a lot of stuff from people they love. Yes, Sorry. that's true. They love the art but then they don't get like how I got, which is like, I need to read every interview he's ever done and find out everything about him. And so when I was reading one of his interviews, um, he was talking about how his website crashed because so many people were looking at it. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And it occurred to me that he, that was all he did. He sold his artwork on his website and did art and it kind of blew my mind. I don't know why, but you know, I saw his artwork and I didn't necessarily make the connection that this was what he did all day long. Yeah. And that was when I started thinking about maybe I could do this cause I could kind of draw like him. And initially my, all of my work was like my early, early, early work is very influenced by him. And it kind of looks a little bit like I'm just copying him. You know how that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was what started me out on thinking, maybe I could do this. Um, if not full time, but do it to earn money. Yeah. Yeah. So then did you, were you kind of, because I know I, I worked in nonprofits too. Okay. And I, I did a thing where I worked at a couple nonprofits at once. And then I got one big illustration job mm-hmm. that was going to give me enough money to live for six months. And so I could quit one of my jobs. And I was like, okay, I'm giving myself a deadline. I have six months to figure out how to make this sustainable so I don't have to go back to a day job at the end of the six months. Right. And then I kind of just like weaned myself off of the day jobs. Okay. 
Well, my path was a little different than that because, um, you know, I still had no clue on how to do it. And so I think, I don't know if he went to art school, but I started thinking about going to art school, but I wasn't sure how I was going to make that happen. Um, because I had the full-time job. I don't, didn't have a bevy of money. I could just pull out and go to art school because it's really expensive. And I found out that, and I had no portfolio. I, I was terrible. I was doing copies of Kurt Halsey's work and then my own style, which was nothing. And I really knew that I needed help, but I didn't know how to go about it. And then I read on the Academy of Art website that they don't have a portfolio review. So a lot of people don't believe me when I say this, but I was terrible. Um, I did not know any of the basics of drawing because I had never taken any classes mm-hmm. um, except for like art league classes with retirees. And I had no basics. And so I knew that's what I needed. And they had this second bachelor's program. So I had my bachelor's in lit from UC Santa Cruz and I didn't want to go to a grad program because a grad program kind of, I felt like assumed that I had some base of knowledge and I was like, I have no base of knowledge. And so I found their second BA program and I was like, that's what I want to do because it gives me the fundamentals mm-hmm. and they have no portfolio review. So I could just kind of give them a bunch of money and get in. Um, but I had to take out a bunch of loans too. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was working a administrative job at the time and I got laid off and I had that conversation with my husband and I was like, I think this is the time that I take the sign. I can't last in a job for over a year. I got laid off from this job. Maybe I should just take out a bunch of loans and go to art school. And so we, you know, we obviously, it wasn't just one conversation. It was a long discussion, but it just kept coming up, you know, like I wanted to see if, if I could do this. So, and then you did it. Yeah. Were there any kind of turning points after you got out of school where you were like, like any, was there anything that changed your life? Mm. Like I can think back to like, I went on tour with sister spit in 2007 and I was reading that I had been doing my own zines Oh, you're like, that. yeah, I've been reading my own zines and like doing that stuff for a long time. Yeah. But I, I hadn't, I was like, I knew I wanted to make a graphic novel, but I needed to be something serious. And I didn't know. But in the meantime, I was traveling the country with them, um, reading from like a blog entry I had made about calling Dr. Laura and about my like family drama. Yeah. And then in New York, I read and a literary agent was in the audience who approached me and was like, would you consider expanding this story into a graphic novel? Because she asked me all these questions and I was like, oh yeah, oh, there's huge answers behind every question you're asking me. Like my family is like really complicated and I never, I always take it for granted. And so I feel like there was like a moment that changed my life Mm -hmm. for the, and also I said yes to that. Like I was ready for that. I was ready for that, you know, moment. And so then I said yes. And then it kind of happened. Yeah. I mean, I think for me. I definitely think that landing my agent was a moment. Um, but the lead up to that was that I had started to um, do a drawing every day mm-hmm. after I got out of art school, which I dropped out of art school. Um, so I got like kind of a set of basics after a year. And then I started going into these classes where all we did was um, analyze uh, one drawing and try to make it perfect. And I was like, I can't make this drawing perfect. I don't have a skill set yet to do that. And so rather I would like to just try to draw a lot. And so I chose to drop out so that I would 
draw a lot. And what I did was force myself to do a drawing every day. And I did that for roughly three years. And I created a small mailing list of family and friends and I would send them my drawings and I made them make me accountable to myself. Mm. And about six months in, maybe eight months in, I can't somewhere in that range, I started realizing that people were asking to be on the mailing list that I did not know. Mm. So I was getting better and people were forwarding these emails with, it was just a drawing a day. Um, and it would start, you know, it made people happy or they wanted to share with their friends. And then a year in, I got my first request for print. So that's kind of how that trajectory went. Um, so that wasn't necessarily life changing, but at the same time that I was doing that, I started, um, thumbnailing a memoir that will never see the light of day. Uh Um, but, uh, I, thought maybe I should do something with this um, because I really loved comics, but I didn't know anything about them and I didn't know what I was doing. And so I sent it out to three different agents after doing research online. And um, I didn't have any contacts to my current agent, but a artist friend that I met said he knew Jean Yang. And Mm -hmm. I tell this story so much. I hope Jean knows this story now. You know, we're friendly, Um, but... Jean, without even seeing this memoir that I thumbnailed, without knowing anything about me, because there wasn't anything really out there, um, was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll recommend her to my agent, which she is, doesn't take any unsolicited yeah. requests or anything. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. He doesn't know anything about me. Why? Why? You know, and I, I still don't know why. Someday maybe I'll ask him. Um, but he's still kind of like, I still revere him, you know, so even though we're friendly, I still kind of like don't want to ask those kinds of questions. But anyway, uh, I would say that that was life changing for Gene to say that he would give his agent a recommendation for me having not known anything. Yeah. Um, and then now we have the same agent. So, yeah. yeah. People in comics can be so nice. No. When I was working on calling Dr. Laura, Alison Bechtel like made herself available to me. We shared, we were in the same agency, and she, like, gave me her phone number to call her and be like, what if my family's mad that I'm writing about them? And she was like, yeah, I mean, they'll probably be unhappy, but you're a writer, so this is just what you have to do. And I just, I mean, she didn't, she just, like, is somebody who's notoriously very generous with, like, the queer comics community and wanting to give back. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Gene is like that. Oh, he's definitely like that. I hope to be, I model so much of how I want to be and... Um, who I want to be after Gene because he's just so giving and um, understanding Mm -hmm. and I don't know he's just a great human yeah well something that my friend Alec Longstreth repeats that Gene Yang did Mm -hmm. was when he was I think when he was doing American Born Chinese he would draw sometimes only 15 minutes a day because he was still teaching high school and he has kids. And so he would wake up early early in the morning and draw and try to draw as much as he could like even a panel a day. But if he didn't have time to draw, he would just draw 15 minutes a day because that's more than zero minutes a day. Right. So how has having a kid changed your process? Ah. Or what was your process like once you got to like be like, oh, people are buying these prints or I can support myself. I don't have to be an admin person anymore. Mm-hmm. So that was also – that was a slow roll. So I quit. I was working as a waitress and at the library. The library was, the, I think, the last thing I quit. 
um, while I was in art school um, because I loved working at the library. But it was, you know, I would get a freelance job here or there and I would sell a few prints, but it was always this thing that was stressing me out. Like money was still a huge stressor. I'm still paying off my art school loans too. Um, but I think, I think it was just that, um, yeah, it was slow. It was slow building up to all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, I mean, I always made time to do art because part of the reason that I even had a buying community is that I was doing that drawing every day. And so when I transitioned to working um, on Pashmina and I, I remember actually having these conversations with my friends where I was freaking out because I knew in order to make the comic good and to actually hit the deadlines that I had, I would have to stop doing the drawing a day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to make any money and people are going to forget about me. And so then I made myself work on the comic and do two drawings a week still, which was totally insane. Yeah. And looking back now, I it was just that I was so used to it, right? Mm-hmm. I was used to both producing a full, complete illustration every single day and also that validation. Mm-hmm. That validation, I would send it out and immediately I would get probably five to 10 responses, um, if not more, if it was a really successful image. And so then you go into making a comic for four years without anybody responding or knowing anything that's going on, um, except your editor. So it was a big change. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's so much like how, how much would you work on it? How it's like what, like 150 pages? It's yeah, 167. 167. <laughs> uh, give or take. <laughs> I, I don't know the exact count. <laughs> but how long did it take you to do? I mean, it's hard for me to gauge. I yeah. feel like for my pages, depending on how intensive they are, like six to eight hours maybe per page, okay. if you include uh, like everything ish. I think that's pretty good. That you're fast. I think so. I mean, I would say I that... I could be tripping, but I think it's true. <laughs> um, I think for me, because I was learning, uh, I would say that I did a full thumbnailed manuscript probably about two to three times. So each page, by the time you see the page, you've seen the page, I, that page has been drawn at least four times. Um, so that's just a lot of time. Yeah. You know. Well, so then how much time were you able to give to drawing it like every day oh uh you know when I was not pressuring myself to do the illustration um I would say it would be about six to seven hours Mm -hmm. yeah of drawing and writing and you know figuring out you know pacing and all that stuff um so it wouldn't be like pure drawing for six hours it would be figuring out paneling maybe throwing it all out and then starting over and all that stuff um and i just re- realized i didn't answer your question earlier about parenting oh yeah because um, you had a baby in the middle of this right i did i actually remember um there was a period where i was doing final art and i was keeping a pace of about four to five final art pages a day what uh yeah um and uh, so it was like 25 a week and in the middle I would stop to like pump breast milk or I would do a split shift which I still do sometimes where I work you know from nine to five do the family time between five to eight baby goes to sleep 
and then I go back to work. But when she was a newborn, I would not be able to go back to work often because I would go back to work and then immediately she would wake up and then we would have to figure out how to, you know, because sleep is just like this constant conversation and battle within the first couple years. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, Pashmina was definitely a victory, but it was an extra victory because I did it while having a newborn, you know, and it was just, there was a lot of, there was a lot of stuff going on. When did you sleep? Never. Never. Like, like if you went back to work at like eight, oh, how right. long can you work before you were like, I'm not doing any good? I'm dead. Yeah. 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 About midnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then sometimes, I mean, outside of the times that she would like wake up immediately when I got back in the studio and then I would just be like, well, forget it. This is not happening. But if I actually got some work done, I'd go to bed at midnight and then effectively a half an hour to an hour later, she would wake up again. And so it was, it was quite miserable for a while. Um, now there's a much better routine, mm-hmm. but it's still, I mean, it's still always a balance, you know, cause I don't close my studio door. I don't want her to not interrupt me or think that like my time is not also inclusive of her. So I think if I had my door closed, she'd probably make the interruptions longer, but she just comes in. Sometimes she gives me like a flower that she's picked or, um, you know, sits on my lap and asks me to pull up drawings that she likes of mine, you know, and then it's like a, and it's nice because otherwise I would never take a break. I'm very bad at giving myself breaks also because I have a finite amount of time that I can work. It's basically nanny hours. Um, and, uh, I always talk to my, to another mom friend of mine about how nanny hours are such precious hours and you have to, you kind of put pressure on yourself to be the most effective possible and get the most done. And that's tapered now. And initially I was like, Oh my God, these are hours that we're paying somebody else to be here. So I have to get everything done. Um, because as soon as she's gone, you know, you're just a hundred percent with your kid. Um, and it's really hard to get other things done. Now it's changed. She's older. Um, and I also don't feel like putting that much pressure on myself. Like it's okay if I go and, you know, peruse Twitter for a little bit or, you know, take a break and like just enjoy my cup of coffee. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what, when Michelle T first was writing after she had Atticus, she was talking about what a bummer it was to write stuff for two hours and then realize it was all garbage and be like, oh my God, I just paid for that time. And then the thing I wrote didn't, like she was putting a lot of pressure on every moment that she spent writing to go somewhere. Yep. So it was a good value. Yes. It's like a great value. (laughs) Well, so you made Pashmina uh, and it came out and that's such an accomplishment. I feel like I kind of knew the story about you like pumping and then working at the same time because we both teach the same students. And so when students are like, I have a job. And I have to draw comics. <laughs> I feel like we're both like kind of like grizzled veteran yeah. people that are like, oh, you think it's so hard? Well, listen to this. <laughs> you know, Like a real kind of uphill in the snow both ways yeah. situation. Yep. But it feels true. And it's like the weird blessing and curse of doing a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing too about at least about parenting is unless you have a lot of parent friends or you've gone through it yourself. It's one of those things that's hard to understand. And it's like that total old saying of you don't know until you've been a parent yourself. And I absolutely loathe that statement because I think there are a lot of people who don't have kids who are close to children or aunties or uncles who are really involved and they know. So I don't think that old adage is true, but I do think that 
when people complain about not having a lot of time or how busy they are, I do kind of feel a little, um, what's that word? I don't know. Salty about it. I'm like, actually, you don't know. You don't know what it's like to not have any time. I literally have one hour to chat with my husband before we fall asleep every night. and so little. And most of the time we're not chatting. We're like, I'm so tired. Do you want to watch our show? Yeah, let's watch our show. And that's it. (laughs) And then you just kind of lay together. Exactly. Today's episode of Sagittarian Matters brought to you by Maddie Dog, Madeline Berger, Mary Pinson, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, and Christy Harrod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, including producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $10, $5 million, that is your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet like the insect, leg like its appendage at gmail. Thank you for your support. And we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's Ponyo's voice. All right. We have a couple of advice questions. Okay. Do you create your art in the same place in your home or do you move around locations? I have one desk in my home. I used to have a studio outside of the home. Mm -hmm. Then I came to L.A. where it was too expensive for that to be real. So now I'm working in my home. I have one desk with like a straight up and down essentially drafting board, and that's what I draw on. If I have to do other stuff, like if I'm thumbnailing or something, I don't necessarily have to sit there. I can sit at my kitchen table or in bed or anywhere. Mm -hmm. But for actual drawing art, I have to sit at that table. So there's just one place for me. Do you ever draw in public? Rarely. By the way, this is an advice. I just realized these are just Q and A questions people ask when I ask for advice. Oh, okay. um, the you advice question. People send these in. People sent these in oh. because I said, "Do you have uh, professional practices questions for us?" Okay. Um, I rarely draw in public. Okay. Sometimes I do if I am having a hard time finishing work at home. Okay. But I cannot stand the attention of it. Mm. I really don't like the attention of it. I don't like that. Did you draw that? Yeah. I don't like. What are you? What are you doing? <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I don't like. Is that supposed to be you? <laughs> Like that? And I'm like, no, it is me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I don't move around too much. I have my studio in my house um, and I have my Wacom Cintiq there. And that's where I do primarily most of my work because I'm a digital artist most of the time. I also got that, but I did recently invest in the Apple iPad Pro and the Apple Pencil Mm. so that I could be more mobile. But the problem with that is that the... um, the DPI, I don't think, is enough to actually use it for final artwork. Mm. Although I've heard from some other people that that might not be true. So, I mean, I might look into it. But I'm also a creature of habit. I have worked in Flash and Photoshop for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And people keep telling me all these different softwares that I should try out because I actually have to use an old operating system to have Flash still work. Mm-hmm. So at some point it's going to be obsolete and I'm going to have to, because I have to have two computers to mm-hmm. go on with the internet with one and this one with the old OS. Anyway, so it's like, it's, it's stupid. But I also think in the interest of not having a lot of time and efficiency, it'd probably be easier for me to keep doing what I'm doing until it's obsolete, until I'm forced to change, Mm -hmm. um, than try to teach myself something new because it will just take time away. So I just work with what I have, the setup that I have. But it's all all pretty much in one room in my house. Yeah. 
Also, I work at 14 by 17 ah. Bristol. And so taking that somewhere is quite obtrusive. Yes. It's not casual. No, no. You you would draw a lot of attention. That's I, the other thing. Like, I was like, oh, but I draw in public all the time. But I usually, there's two things. I wouldn't do it alone. So, because then you do get those people who would want to engage with you. So I always draw in a group of, of other artists. And most people don't want to talk to us. Because we're probably drawing them. Um, and then uh, I also draw on something small. So you would be so obvious. I would. I mean, like, even if I'm on a plane or something, like, I'll draw in my little notepad or, like, I'll doodle, like, sometimes if I'm at some kind of a meeting or something. Yeah. But that moment where someone looks over your shoulder, <laughs> like, I am such a teenager. When I'm on an airplane and someone's looking over my shoulder, I'll, like, write, like, stop looking at me. <laughs> and, like, yeah, I just, I don't. <laughs> like it i'm like a teenager with like a sign on my door that's just like stay out mom like that's how i feel yeah yeah like go away (laughs) once my friend alec i don't know i'm talking about him all the time but he was on the subway drawing on like bristol board giant and a stoned guy as he was finishing a drawing said did you draw that (laughs) (laughs) no i just picked this up it was just hanging out (laughs) it's like you just watched me draw it yeah i did i did draw it (laughs) um somebody wants to know some of these, because you, so you don't do memoir right now. Mm-hmm. True. Somebody has some, some memoir thing. How can I get started writing comics is a question somebody asked us. I think you should just start writing comics. True. I think you should just try. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's a hard question to ask because we don't know anything about the person or their skill set. I mean, you can do so much with comics and one, not know how to draw or um, write something really simple, do something that's only visual. There's so many different ways. And I think, actually, I think the best advice on how to start writing comics is to read a lot of comics. You got to read a lot of comics and just try. You know what I, you know what the most instructive thing I have my students do is, is I have them bring in a comic they love, an example of a comic they love and an example of a comic that drives them bonkers. And then I have them, the assignment, the original assignment was a page, but I make it a panel because my students are short on time. Mm -hmm. I have them recreate a panel from the one they love and from the one they hate. It's a trick. It's a twist. And the, it's like an Ivan Brunetti exercise that I got, but basically, uh, they need to try and draw at the same size they thought the person drew. Mm. They need to try and use the same tools the person did because that's often like the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. And they find that to be the most instructive. Huh. So I think if this person wants to get better at drawing in the style of comics they like, yeah. try to copy some of them. Right. But it's interesting because I am so DIY and everything I ever made was like on paper of me photocopying and Xeroxing. And I'm so interested in your method, which was more digital mm-hmm. from the beginning. And those are two different ways of getting into the same kind of industry. Yeah. I mean, I definitely started with traditional because I went to the, you know, I went to art school. So everything was, was, um, really focused on traditional stuff. Um, and I went to digital mostly because I wanted to not be messy because I'm kind of neurotically clean. Um, and because I wanted to produce something every single day, mm-hmm. you know, and I also really love color. And one of the things that they have you do in art school is not do anything in color for a while. And you do all these like ridiculous swatches of grayscale. And I didn't learn about value until I started working in color. So when I was doing grayscale work, which I still talk to students about now about value and all that stuff, but, um, 
I had a really hard time wrapping my head around it as absent of color. But when I put color in there, I was like, oh, okay, foreground, midground, background, that all makes sense to me now. Mm. You know, this is coming forward, this is receding. But I could not understand that in grayscale. I can now, but at the time, I couldn't. Oh, interesting. I mean, I I rarely, rarely work in color. It's only recently that I've started to, and mostly for like Instagram. Because a long time ago, a long time ago, it was like so expensive to print anything in color that it was like, what am I like the Monopoly man? I'm not going to make a zine with a color cover. Uh, right, right, right. That's crazy. Yeah. But then putting things online, I like for them to pop. And then I was like, oh, this sounds fun. Right. Basically any kind of art practice that's not my, my main art practice sounds fun to me. Yeah. Like I'm like, oh, this person works in gouache. Fun. Pen- just pencil? No inks? Fun. Like everything seems like so much more fun than the thing that I have lashed myself to. That's funny. I, I never thought of it that way, but I think I'm exactly the same way as you. Whenever I see somebody doing something, especially if it's traditional, um, gouache or watercolor or anything, and I'm like, oh, I want to try that. That looks so great. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fun. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. All right. I want to pivot to professional practices. Do you have any professional practice advice for young cartoonists or illustrators? It's or pretty you... generic. I know. Question. It's pretty broad. It's so broad. I mean, I guess any, like, what would you have told yourself? Are there any, like, for me, I think of, like, mistakes I made. Oh. And mistakes I made were... Like that I would harass the art director instead of harassing the accounts payable department. Oh, to get so, paid? Yeah. Yeah. So then I would seem like an annoying person to the person I needed to hire me again. Right. That would be like a misstep. Mm-hmm. So in general, I mean, I think that my, my overall stuff to them, besides that very specific thing, is just to be very friendly mm-hmm. to a lot of people and to get all the information up front and to not be lazy. So later if you're like, I think they want it like this, but I'm not sure, so I'm going to do it my way, like, don't. Yeah. Like, go the extra mile. So, it's interesting that you bring that up, because I had this, um, hopefully she won't listen to this. Well, (laughs) I had this great conversation with her, and she was talking about how um, (coughs) she brought up an issue, (coughs) excuse me, um, with uh, somebody she was working with, and she explained how she was just basically like, no, that's not how it's going to go, and I don't want that to happen. And I was listening to her, and I was singing really? Wait, you just did that? Because I'm always afraid of being perceived as an angry woman of color who, like, excuse me, doesn't um, listen or, you know, tries to get her way or whatever it is. But I'm always really cognizant of the opportunities and the spaces that I'm taking and how those spaces previously were not available to me and so I treat them as very precious and I try really hard not to mess up any of these opportunities because if I'm I see it as if I mess it up for myself I'm potentially messing it up for a lot of other people um and so I want to make sure that I don't ruffle anybody's feathers and so I was listening to her and kind of like just all ears like how did you that's that's awesome and I was like oh that's only because you're like an award-winning cartoonist and um that's how you can do that stuff and then she was encouraging me to to really if I felt strongly about something to go ahead and say that so I think it's interesting that you're saying that because I feel like you and I are similar in that we want to make sure that 
you stay friendly and you know I have opinions about things but even when I do that I'm very again I walk a really fine line because I don't want to mess the relationship up because I'm always thinking about will this affect me down the line and you know will this affect even if it doesn't affect the relationship maybe it affects the amount of money that they pay me next or the opportunities they think about me for whatever it is so yeah it's interesting I mean I think about that too I mean there was definitely a moment where I pushed back on something with an editor and then I got labeled as difficult or like hard to work with yay you and me too really yeah and I it was about it through the grapevine and it wasn't even a big deal it was like I had done you know, what had happened was I had done nine months of editing on a project with my editor and we were like simpatico. We were like sharing the same brain, like, okay, like Nicole, here's these edits. I know it's intense. If you work hard, we're going to do this. And then she, you know, I was like about to get to the finish line and she was like, this is wonderful. I just got a new job. I'm passing you off to this other person. And I was like, okay. She's like, everything should be fine. Just turn it in. And I turned it in. And then the other person was like, took another look at it we have about six more months worth of edits for you. And I had a little bit of pushback. I was like, but this is the thing that we had talked about. And like, this was the thing I had worked on. And then I still did a lot of his edits and I still amended the book and it's a better book for it. And I, you know, I was like, thank you for the opportunity (laughs) to spend a full year and a half on the edits instead of just nine months. But, um, but then I got labeled. I, he was telling people that I was hard to work with mm-hmm. or difficult. And I was like, man, yeah, so. I've had that same experience. And you do find out about it later and you're like, wait, what did I do? I don't understand. I did, you know, you still did the work, right? Absolutely. Still did the work, but maybe initially you push for something or you ask questions. And none of that stuff should be discouraged. But I just feel like, Maybe it's just easy to label women as difficult whenever they have an opinion or um, are forceful about something and expect more or expect to be treated a certain way. I don't know. It's really messed up. It makes me so angry. It is. I mean, we've talked about this happens. For me, I found that, you know, I get gendered evaluations from students, which I never even knew was a thing until I was, you know, crying about my evaluations to a friend that's been a professor for a billion years. Mm. And she was like, that's all just gendered stuff. And I was like, yeah. oh, that that makes me feel better. I mean, better slash worse. Where I'm right. like, oh, I couldn't have won. <laughs> I couldn't have won even if I wanted to. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it, that stuff makes me mad too. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I'm like, if I, I always, I'm like, if I know the exact right way to be, then like. <laughs> then I'll just do that. Right. I'll I'll take the path of least resistance. Thank you. But also there is no perfect way to be because every single person is going to perceive you differently. Can't make everybody happy. But I just feel like me asking for things and expecting things shouldn't be something that labels me as difficult. It should just be something that everybody, everybody wants stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has expectations. It should just be treat me like everybody else. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know. And it's just an opportunity for the project to grow for like better communication and everything. You told me that, that story too. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I was also like, Oh my God. Mm -hmm. I was like, you told people exactly what you wanted and you stood up for yourself. I've never heard of such a thing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. If you have an advice question for Sagittarian matters, call or text our advice hotline, 971-361-9998. Leave a message. 
We might answer your question on the air, and we promise not to answer the phone. That is a Sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank. Um, we both teach here. Mm -hmm. uh, how long have you been teaching here, and what, what is your teaching philosophy, or what are you trying to impart on students in your time with them? So it's just my second term teaching that I just finished in the spring, um, and I think if I can do anything to help them get where they want to go, that's really how I see um, my role is shepherd, shepherding them to the next place in their comics journey um, and hopefully giving them, I also see myself kind of as like their first editor, mm -hmm. right? So uh, I have a really great editor for a second and um, I love and value his opinion and his thoughts and feedback and so I kind of tried to utilize what I've learned through that relationship in the relationship that I have with my students and I also think that my role is um, to make sure that they have realistic expectations for what it's like out there and what they can and can't do with their work and so <clears throat> I think that being a working professional is really key and so I try to give them as much insight into that whole industry and without getting too steeped in the absolute concrete details of it all because sometimes people get sidetracked by that like I've had a few students who just keep asking more and more questions about the industry but they're not ready to even get there yet so we have to kind of you know reverse and make sure that all that stuff is covered before we get into the very minute details of how you craft this or how this you know, relationship, um, works out or whatever. I mean, sometimes on day one, students will be like, how do I get an agent? And I'm like, well, you don't make a few mini comics. Maybe like, right. it's, yeah. maybe like, let's like start, let's like walk before we run. Right. Let's crawl. Maybe yeah. let's even crawl before we run. Yeah. Like how do I work for Marvel? Right. Like day one. And you're like, well, first of all, I don't know. Um, because I don't work for, you know, work with them. And second, like, let's just, let's backpedal a little bit, like you, you know, gotta learn to draw. Like yeah. number one is like, right. learn to draw and write, yeah. learn to do those things together mm -hmm. and then have people like your work and promote your own work and then let other people see the other people like your work. And then you can start talking about that. Yeah. That's what I think. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with like kind of our, um, immediate gratification society right now. You know, you want to be able to put something online and have it go viral and then get a book deal. And that happens, you know, like I, I remember, what was that in the New Yorker, that story? Did you read that story? Cat person? Oh, I read cat person. Yeah. And then she got a book deal like a month later or something. And it was like a bidding war. And I was like, okay, so how many times have you heard that story? Once, right? I've heard of that happening once. So if you have a Cinderella story, sure. But the majority of people are going to work for years and years and years yeah. <laughs> before they get something like even close to the opportunity. Um, but I do think that, you know, we, and I mean, this has happened for generations, you know, it's not just now because we're in this tech um, uh, renaissance, but it's, it's, you get, you get those Cinderella stories and that's the thing that you want to happen to you. But in all reality, the majority of people have to work. Well, even the cat person person, it wasn't like the first story she had ever written. No, she, she was in a grad program. I think she has a master's in creative writing. Like she's probably written so much and read so much. I think that that's the thing. Like 
Yeah, maybe you are, maybe you did one doodle one day. It was the first doodle you ever did. And it went, if that, if you get that too famous and you don't have the chops or the work, the work ethic or the skill to actually follow through, you're not going to be able to sustain that. And the, the key is not to get a million likes. The key is to be able to sustain something and have a life as an artist. Mm-hmm. Like I just, when people ask me, they're like, how did you publish a graphic novel? I have a salty answer, which is like, well, I had a terrible childhood. <laughs> it's just terrible, just a horrible childhood. And then like uh, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of therapy. And I uh, published my own work for like over 10 years on my own dime. I toured the country several times for no money or I paid money. And then I'm just like after publishing like 500 pages of my own work on my own hand, then one time I was like on a 30-day tour and I happened to be telling a story in front of this person. And so then I had the chops to back it up. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, there's not a thing where you woke up one day. It's not like an Instagram model yeah. where one day you're like, I put a mustache on my dog and now <laughs> she's viral. Like that I could keep up. But yeah. telling a compelling story that actually like grabs people and keeps them mm-hmm. is a different thing. Yeah. But I, it's, you know, nobody wants that answer. Nicole, no. nobody wants they don't that. Want that. They're like, <laughs> um, okay, but like, how did you get meet your agent? Like, yeah, when you exactly. met your agent, like, what did you say? Yeah. I was yeah. like, what, what's it? What's the kernel that I can like, you know, attach myself to that I can maybe repeat in my own life? Yeah, they don't want to do the ten years of work and you know have all this like stuff that they go in debt for um, mm-hmm. before they get to. You know, I mean, it's fine. We always want to fast track success, and I always say this. The other thing that I uh, find myself saying a lot is um, support each other right support your friends and anybody doing anything creative because it's really easy to support something when it's successful and it's way harder to support somebody when they're starting out and that's when they need it the most like Stephen King doesn't need your moral support right now but he probably needed it when he was starting out and he was still like I think he was working in a hotel or something and doing the wash you know he needed it then um and so that's the kind of stuff that is important you know, sometimes I really think, God, there was somebody on Twitter that was like, you want to know how to support trans women with money? I was like, I was like, ha, ha, ha. Then I was like, oh. Yeah. I was like, that's true. It's totally like, true. Like, I, I put my actual money, where, and we're in a capitalist society. Whether or not one agrees with capitalism, that's just where we are. So if I'm like, I want to support trans artists, and I want to see more of their stories, mm-hmm. I need to, like, go on Google, find people I don't know personally, order their stuff online, give them money, and then tell other people about them. Yep, that's the same. That's the same how I feel about, like, a lot of artists starting out. Like, I would much rather support um, a Kickstarter that didn't meet its goal, you know, than one that's, like, getting really close and they're, like, promoting the crap out of it and they're, you know, struggling. Um, Because the Kickstarters that go, you know, and meet their goal in, like, 12 hours and go beyond it, they they need our support, too. I think all art needs our support. But um, it's really important for you to, like, go towards those things that are there almost you know or need that help and you know you never know where it's gonna go yeah um all right my last oh do you have a least favorite part of the process and then i may have a last question for you oh of comics process um i hate all of it at some point 
<laughs> I know this is this is, I have a similar TED talk. <laughs> um, you know, I think that it's totally natural to love part of the process and then hate it like literally the next minute because it's hard. And I see making a book as a roller coaster. Um, there are ups, there are downs. There are times where, like right now, I just uh, finished um, the first time travel uh, portion of Jukebox. And I feel really great about it. And I was just like chomping at the bit to get my husband to read it because he's the only one who sees it before anybody else. And he was just like, I'll get to it. I'm like, no, but it's so, it's brilliant. It's, I need you to read it and then just tell me that it's brilliant. I don't actually need any of your feedback. No, no, this is the feedback I'm <laughs> yeah. looking for. This is, just say, it's brilliant. I've read it, it's brilliant. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that there's also that, you know, literally the flip side of that is that the next day I'm like, okay, he said it's brilliant, but I told him to say it was brilliant. Is it actually brilliant? Oh my God, I hate this. I should totally never do this again. Why did I do this again? I thought that I would never do this again after I finished Pashmina. So yeah, there's, there's just a love hate through the whole process. Is it similar to childbirth in that after you finish a graphic novel and you're like, I would never do that again. Like six months later, you're like, I think I'm going to do another graphic novel where you have like the amnesia of yeah. childbirth. So this is what I like to say because people have asked me this question. I was working on Pashmina for four years. I only carried my daughter for nine months. So it's a much longer uh, making process. Um, so the giving birth process is... Um, I feel like almost more celebratory because the gestation process is so much longer. Um, there's some, there's a lot of similarities though, because I did have amnesia and about a month after I submitted Pashmina, I pitched my next books and I was like, what am I doing? But I was, it's addictive. Well, you know, also your body's like used to doing that amount of work every day. Mm-hmm. So then you're like, okay, what am I doing now? What am I doing now? Am I doing anything? I'm unemployed. I'm unemployed. What am I doing? I'm a hobo. I'm living in a van down by the river. What am I doing? Yeah. Like currently I feel unemployed. Oh really? Cause I don't have a book contract. I have like four different book proposals at different stages, mm. but, and I make work all the time. Right. And I feel unemployed. I have like weird imposter syndrome or something. I totally understand that. When I was, I, I just finished a picture book. Um, but the whole time I was working on the picture book, I was just like, can I just like, get back to comics? I just want to get back to comics. And then when I, <clears throat> when I was done with the picture book and I was like, okay, great. I can get back into comics. It took me like a week to actually open the file. Cause I was like, oh, but I'm actually afraid of this. <laughs> like, wait, I wanted this, but I don't want it. Oh, I forgot how much work this is. Yeah. It's so hard. It is. The last thing, this might be too heavy, but do you feel the burden of representation? Always. Always, forever. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to. I I still have not heard anything um, the contrary, but I'm pretty sure Pashmina is the first Indian-American comic that's published by a major publisher. So the whole time I was making it, I was like, well, am I going to alienate this part of the Indian community? I'm going to be a spokesperson for this part. In general, like the reception from my community has been really great, really positive. So I'm not, um, I'm glad that I was worried about it in that time because it made me, you know, take more care with the decisions that I was making. Um, but it's, it sucks actually. I just want more people to be in the industry who have a similar background. Um, partly because it'd be nice to talk to them. Mm -hmm. Um, but also so that I don't have to be like 
you know, I'm not the only one by any means, but feel so lonely. Yeah. You know, how about you? Well, I, I don't know. I was thinking about it the other day. I don't know why it just hit me the other day. I was uh, again, again on Twitter, just fascinating podcast talking about things I saw on Twitter and then loosely, (laughs) loosely translating them. But I was on Twitter and I saw some kind of, you know, some straight cisgendered, like upper middle class, whatever cartoonist person I know who, or I know of who just, you know, was doing like just riffing, just doing some, just some weird experimental comics. And I was thinking about how most of the people I know who are marginalized in some way, mm-hmm. like they draw, like their life depends on it. And they're, because at some point it did, I mean, for me, at least at some point it did like yeah. seeing myself reflected back felt like life or death. And the thing that like pulled me out of wherever I was, mm-hmm. but now I feel like I'm paying an endless debt and I have so much political stuff going on in the background of anything I do. Like everything I do is like for the community, for the younger person, for the isolated queer person, for the voter who doesn't know any queer people and blah, blah, blah. Like I just feel like so much pressure and weight that I never feel like just being like, this is just a, just a riff on uh, people walking around the forest. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like I never feel that groovy (laughs) in that way. Or if I am, I'm like, is there a secret meeting? Like, am I trying to get people to go vegetarian with this? Like, what's the point of this? <laughs> right. It's interesting too, because I, um, in the, initially when I started doing my illustration work, I told you, um, I was doing a drawing every day and, um, you know, I often talk about it as this thing that I was doing to get better. And that's true, but I was also doing it. I had, I've always had this kind of underlying message with the work that I do. Even if you look at it, it's like, oh, it's cute. It's panda bears or it's a couple in love. And that's so great. Um, But I wanted to create artwork to make a political statement that you don't have to create intense, angry stuff to um, make people think differently. Right. Mm. And um, you can draw cute things and you can connect with people and remind them that of all the stuff that's going on, all the bad political um, climate or the shootings or whatever, that there's still moments of beauty in your life and that art is there to remind you of that. And that's what I wanted to create. And I also, in that, um, wanted to make sure that I was representing couples that aren't represented often. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the main ways that people found me initially, um, is I would do a lot of mixed race couples. I would do queer couples and they're like, Oh my God, I never see this. Like, this is amazing. Like just having a casual good time. Yeah. Like people can be queer and then no one gets punished with violence afterwards. Right. Yeah. And they're just in love and it's, it's beautiful. And I want to put it up on my wall. Um, and one of the things that I absolutely loved is I did this, um, piece of art that was really popular for a very long time. And it was these two mermaids. Um, and they were kind of like dancing. It's called water dance and they're both Brown. Um, and I just loved all these little, little girls who have no concept of like, you know, they don't look like me. Um, and I was like, they're Brown mermaids all over all these people's walls who don't look like them, you know, and it doesn't have to be that, you know, and that you can have something that's, um, somebody who looks different than you and still respond to it. Like you respond to the visuals of it, the emotion, the beauty. Um, anyway, so all that stuff is, are things that I think about. And I think people who followed my work for long enough know that I have a very strong opinion and political voice within my work. But on the, on, on the, 
if you just looked up my work, it would just be like, oh, this is cute, lovey-dovey stuff. But it all has that kind of edge to it. Yeah. So. It's yeah. All, I think that you succeed at that. Just so you know, as an outside, as a looker, yeah. yes. as a as a, a patron of the arts, I'm like, yeah. oh, you succeed. Yeah, awesome. I just I think it's all it's all there yeah. on the page. I just I yeah I've had that feeling before, like watching one too many movies where people get punished for whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I just want there to be a story where these people get to exist and have joy, and then that's it. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I was doing, I have all these like notes on um, on my board for Jukebox, the book that I'm working on right now, and they're going, they go back in time multiple times. I think it's about six times. And there was one time where we were working on something, um, going back in the nineties. And I was like, I just want them to have fun in this one. I just want them to go and have fun. Oh, sorry. In the eighties, in the eighties, they go back and they find themselves in, um, a breakdancing circle and then they get invited to break dance and that's all that happens they just go they have fun they come back you know because there's a lot of story within the whole book um but i just wanted it to be a time travel piece that had all the points in history peopled with people of color Mm -hmm. because time travel erases race um, so often it's insane and so they go back to all these spaces that are predominantly like peopled with people of color and um they also have fun they're just having fun they get to go and have an adventure and it doesn't have to be political and they don't have to like justify their existence or why they're there just they get to relax yeah they get to well i mean they're still on an adventure so they're trying to find somebody Mm -hmm. um but even that that's like they don't have a big political statement they're making they're just finding somebody who's lost and while they're doing it they get to go back in time so you know that's all that stuff it's like i feel like pashmina was my identity piece and i don't want to do another one of those Mm -hmm. um i want to move forward and moving forward is now doing this adventure story and then who knows what i'll do next but yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah. Nitty, how can people find you? Um, they can find me online at everydayloveart.com or on Twitter or Instagram. It's Nitty Art, which is N-I-D-H-I-A-R-T. Cool. Thanks for coming on Such Cherry Matters. Yeah. Thanks for having me. What's your sign? I forgot to ask. Scorpio. You might be only the second Scorpio we've ever had. Oh, wow. Welcome. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.